We have been uh, going through a series briefly the last number of weeks on the attributes of God. And tonight we're going to read a little bit longer of a passage from Psalm 139. But I think it, it very strongly goes over the attribute that we're going to be talking about tonight, which is God's omniscience. Not a word that we use too often in our culture, but a word that deserves our attention. So with that, let's bow for a word of prayer, and then we'll read together and move on. Father, thank you, our King, for being the one who stoops down lower in order to save us. You stoop down beneath us to lift us up so that we can be where you're at, so that, as the text says, your right hand can uphold us. Father, as I pray as we take this time now to dig into your word, you would feed us and strengthen us and encourage us with the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Psalm 139 reads like this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I free from, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. End of reading. Well, a while back, I got a call from a friend of mine. I was busy at the time, and I couldn't answer the phone, and so he left a voicemail. And, of course, if you're anything like me, then it takes you a while to check voicemail. Uh, but I finally got around to it, and uh, 
you know, he was just calling to give me a little update on life. And then, to my surprise, when I listened to his message a little while later, um, well, he sounded distraught. And actually, he asked me for forgiveness in the voice book. Now, honestly, I, I, uh, I could say I really had no idea what he wanted my forgiveness for. I was sort of intrigued. He just said, I want you to forgive me. And I thought, what did you do? You know, that's kind of unnerving when somebody asks for your forgiveness and you have no idea why. So I called him and it ends up he was sort of doing a moral inventory of his life and felt like he had said some really insulting things to me. Uh, a little while back, you know, my friend had gone from declaring himself a Christian to then becoming an agnostic. And I guess at one point he may have called himself an atheist. And in that process, I mean, I was still, I was a young pastor. This is some years ago. In that process, he, in trying to sort of argue his way for agnosticism and atheism, said some pretty insulting things about Christianity to me and pretty insulting things about Christians. And so he named what the insulting things were he said to me, to which I assured him, listen, you know, I'm plenty used to hearing insulting things about Christianity and about Christians, not to worry. Uh, all is forgiven. I hold no grudge. I didn't even remember what you said, and I forgave him. But then he said something really interesting to me that stuck with me in his explanation. He said, my problem, I think, was I thought I knew something. And I'm realizing now, I don't know all that much. I thought I knew something. You ever thought you've known something, been certain of something, only to find out that you were just totally wrong? I mean, I haven't, but I'm sure, I mean, that's happened to you, right? I mean, at one time, the majority of the world was convinced, of course, that the earth was flat. Turns out, no, nope, wrong for a thousand years or longer. At one time, it was obvious to some that black people were less than human. It was obvious to some, for that matter, that women were less than human. These were, these were sort of uh, accepted facts in certain cultures around the world. We mock this stuff today, and rightly so, but I promise you, there are many things we just know, we're certain, are true today. That in the future, we'll be laughed and mocked, looked at with derision. And that thing, that recognition that we don't know everything, well, the scripture says that never happens to God. That moment never happens to God, where he recognizes, oops, no, it's never happened and never will happen. Thus Isaiah asks in chapter 40 of his book, verse 13, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. Nobody has shown him anything. Scripture says not only does God know everything, it says that he foreknew everything that would come to pass in this world before he ever created it. Indeed, this is why Colossians 2 verse 3 says, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
God really does know something, it turns out. He knows it all. So what are the implications of that for us? From our passage in the Psalms, I think first of all we can find we can see that that means his knowledge is undeceivable. That's the first fact we learn about God's knowledge. It's he's undeceivable. Nevertheless, it's always amazing how much we try and make ourselves believe we can do it. Oftentimes, we're no different than our first parents in the garden, Adam and Eve, who honestly thought they were hiding from God by putting some fig leaves over their private parts. I mean, it's ridiculous. But we're not much different. This means that we have to treat God differently than we normally do our neighbor. In some ways, for good or bad, I mean, we depend on our neighbor's ignorance on a whole host of issues, right? Don't we? I mean, we depend on our neighbor not seeing behind closed doors in our life because there's things that if they saw them, we wouldn't feel very comfortable. It's a dependence on our neighbor's ignorance that makes it often bearable to go outside. I mean, you, you call in sick to your boss when you're not really sick. You're depending on your boss's ignorance of your real health condition to get the day off without penalty, right? You see, that's just you depending on your neighbor's ignorance. They're not knowing to get by. And what Scripture is telling us is that you can't do that with God. That you can't ever assume that he doesn't know, that he always, in fact, does know. That's why our text today says, quote, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And our text goes on to delineate three things specific to us that he, in fact, knows. Number one, our actions. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 139. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Everywhere I walk, you're there. Everywhere I go. Psalm 69. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Just think of that for a second. Every action, God knows it. He sees it. He sees how you treat your neighbors and your friends and your family and your kids. He sees and knows how you and your boyfriend talk to each other. He sees and knows what you watch on TV. He sees and knows every bit of your internet history, no matter how many times you've deleted it. He sees and knows what you do at your job, and he sees and knows how you drive. Or for that matter, react to the train when it's full of sweaty fellow passengers. He sees it all. But this knowledge, though much broader with God, is, is not completely unique to God. I mean, in other words, there are many people that see our actions in, on a daily basis. And so this doesn't make God all that special. But it goes on and shows why, indeed, his knowledge is even broader, more, more impressive. Because it says that he not only knows all our actions, but he knows all our words. Look at verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Because of this, he knows what our words really mean. You ever had somebody talk passive-aggressively to you? Or give you a backhanded compliment? You're like, I think they meant something mean there, but it didn't sound mean. 
and I'm pretty sure it was, God knows. He can tell you. Yeah, that was a back-end economy. Yeah, that was total passive aggression right there. Matthew 12, verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned, Jesus says. Many of us talk differently at home than we do in public, I think. I know. I do. We choose our words more carefully when we're at work than we do at home, but God hears it all. He hears and knows when we gossip. He hears and knows when we genuinely compliment someone and when we're just saying something to flatter them. He hears and knows when we're being a really sarcastic jerk, and he hears and knows our praises, too. He hears and knows everything. Your words, in fact, matter. But even beyond that is if that weren't enough, the Bible says that God sees and knows your thoughts. So now we're really in a hot mess. I mean, it's theoretically possible that we could uh, move in such a way in our actions that it looks like we're doing pretty well. And it's even theoretically possible that we could clean up our language enough to sound like pretty darn nearly perfect human beings. It's theoretically possible. I've known people like this. My grandma is like this. I don't know that she's actually sinned. She's just a wonderful, wonderful lady. And yet here is the killer. He knows our thoughts. You know when I sit down, verse 2, and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. In other words, he knows your deepest motivations for why you do what you do. And that's, that's killer because that means that even the stuff that, that we're doing that looks good on the outside, he can see whether our motives are pure or not. He can see whether we're doing it because we want the accolades for doing it or whether we're truly doing it out of a genuine heart of love and care for our neighbor. So, on the outside, I might... Let's say walk an elderly lady across the street here, across First Avenue, because it's a busy street, and I want to make sure she gets by in time. And God can tell whether I did that, because I'm hoping that people around me will say, man, isn't that the pastor over to Epiphany? What a great guy. What a great church that must be. We should go attend that church where that pastor helps elderly ladies. Or he can tell whether I just did it because I truly felt compassion for the elderly lady. God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts when we're cut off on the road. He knows our thoughts when we're complimented. We say, oh, no, no. And he says, yes, yes. You absolutely wanted that compliment. He knows our thoughts when we're at work. He knows our thoughts toward our spouse, our kids, our friends, our work, our parents, our teachers, our bosses, our coworkers, the guy in front of us who's taking forever to order at Starbucks. He knows whether the praise that you've sung to him tonight is genuine. He knows it all. So God could say of his people in the, the prophet Hosea, the Old Testament, these people praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
And I'm just going to tell you, there's been plenty of times that I've stood right here and I have sung loudly. And yet there have been moments where my heart has not been focused on praising the Lord, but it has been focused on a thousand other things. What God says of the people during Hosea's time, he could say of me because he knows all things and he knows how divided I can be. And he knows the same thing about you. And so that leads to the second implication of his knowledge for us, and that is that his knowledge judges. So he doesn't just know things and stays uh, sort of neutral, but his knowledge causes him to take action. Verse 19 through 22 of our psalm speak of God's knowledge leading to, quote, condemnation of the wicked and, quote, men of blood. They are described as those that are God's enemies. Now, when we hear that, we can easily place ourselves outside of that group. As we've talked about before here, the Bible declares that each human being naturally falls into that group. Because he sees our thoughts, and he hears our words, and he knows our actions. As Romans 3 says, all have together turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then it even says about all of humanity that they're quick to shed blood in that same passage in Romans 3. Literally the thing that the psalmist is cursing. Paul says, yeah, it's true, Bobby. It's true of every human. God knows it. And you say, well, what are you talking about? I've never murdered a fly. I mean, I, I, I can't even hurt an insect. But, but again, he knows the thoughts. And he says, if you're just angry unjustly at somebody, that's the seed that leads to murder. If you lust after someone, it's as if you've cheated on your spouse with that person. You know, it gets right down to the very core of who we are. But he knows. He knows. He sees it all, and that's when we recognize that ultimately he has every right to judge. There's a verse in Romans that says that uh, God exposes us to our sins so that everyone will be held accountable to him. And, And there's a sense in which his knowledge is doing that here. The Bible says to love God with all our heart, all our soul, our mind, our strength. But we don't come anywhere close in that. And if you go to the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, it's not there. He knows it. He knows it. He has every right to judge me. He has every right to judge me. There's an old interview on 60 Minutes with Mike Wallace and a former concentration camp prisoner named Yahil Danur. It is one of the most profound illustrations of this knowledge that sometimes we can become utterly aware of and shaken to the core about. This man is a, Yehiel Denor, by all accounts, was a good man. And he testified against Adolf Eichmann at the Nuremberg trials. And 18 years before, Eichmann had sent Denor away to Auschwitz to be gassed. I mean, Eichmann is, his, you know, the sort of the face, the epitome of evil. And in this story, Wallace asks Denor about a particular event that happened in the trial. When Denur walked into the trial, he saw Eichmann and he began to uncontrollably sob and shake. And so Wallace said, what was it that caused you 
to cry and to break down like that? Was it fear of this man, of this monster? Because that's what we all want to do with these people that have done great evil. We want to label them monster. Separate them from me. They're not like me. And here's what Denure said. Denure said, it wasn't that I was afraid. It wasn't that I, I, I was overcome with hatred or fear or horrid memories. No, rather it was all at once. I realized that Eichmann was not the gun-like army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like him. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. But no one is blameless, so his eyes are running to and fro and finding nobody, nobody throughout the entire earth. The Psalms say only the truly pure in heart can ascend his holy hill of his presence. And no one, according to Romans 3, is pure. Everyone is stained with this sin and God knows it. So how in the world can this be fixed? Who's blameless enough to be supported? Who's perfect? That leads to the last implication of his, of his knowledge. Since God knows everything, not only did he see everything we would do, but he saw and knew what he would have to do in order to save us. Therefore, the final implication is that his knowledge saves. In light of our text examining God's ability to see everything in the psalmist's life, it's amazing that the writer has hope at all. And yet we see in verse 7 that David, even though he wants to flee from God in light of his knowledge, indeed still has hope, just not of himself. If you go to verse 10, he makes an interesting statement. As he is speaking about God's knowledge, even extending to the depths of the sea, he says, even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. It's not clear at first. There's an amazing statement being made there. That statement, your right hand shall hold me, meant a ton to the ancient world. Because we find out in the New Testament that this right hand is another way of speaking of Jesus Christ. So Hebrews chapter 8 verse 3 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In spite of God's thoroughgoing knowledge of all David's mess, and we know we can read the history in the Bible, David was an absolute train wreck for so much of his life and made so many bad, sinful, dumb mistakes. David still clings to the hope of God's right hand being able to save him out of it. And so should we. Because the Bible says from before time began, he knew his creation would fall. But also before time began, he knew he would come to be their savior from their sins. And therefore, 
his knowledge can be good news. Because though knowing our sins, he has provided his right hand to lead us in the way everlasting. According to Hugh Ross in his book, The Finger of God, talks a lot about Einstein and Einstein's relationship to God. And he says, Einstein gave grudging acceptance to the necessity of a beginning and eventually to the presence of a superior reasoning power. It's about as far as he went. He could never really accept the doctrine of a personal God. He just couldn't, couldn't get there. And one of the reasons that he rejected this personal God was because of what he wrote in one of his writings. He said, if this being is omnipotent, all power, powerful, then every occurrence, including every human action, every human thought, and every human feeling and aspiration is also his work. How is it possible to think of holding men responsible for their deeds and thoughts before such an almighty being? In giving out punishment and rewards, he would to a certain extent be passing judgment on himself. How can this be combined with the goodness and righteousness ascribed to him, Einstein said? Seeing no solution to the paradox, he ruled out the existence of God as personal. But I would say in response to Einstein, that is precisely what Christianity teaches that though knowing all our failures and weaknesses, God, out of great love, takes the punishment for those failures and weaknesses on the cross. He does not hold man responsible for their sins, but he holds Jesus responsible for all of man's sins. He passes judgment on himself. He absorbs the judgment, yet it is, he is not deserving of any rebuke, certainly not. But his justice is therefore satisfied. So Christ becomes our substitute so we can have his rewards. He becomes our substitute so righteousness and goodness, as the psalmist says, can be ascribed to us. So his knowledge goes from something that we might naturally want to run from and be terrified of to something that we can rejoice in because what he knows about you now through faith in Jesus Christ, this is what God knows about you now. He knows that you're covered completely in his righteousness. What he knows about you now is that you are his son and daughter. What he knows about you now and forever for eternity is that his love is everlasting for you. So his knowledge, rather than being something we run from now, is something we rejoice in. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, thank you for this good news. We pray that you would help us to, to not flee from you knowing our lives, but just to be open and honest and recognize it for what it is. That every, every flaw we have, every mess up we have, every sin that we have committed, ultimately, God, ultimately, we bring it to the cross and accept Jesus's payment on our behalf and look forward to being able to come to you transparently knowing that we won't be condemned with bloodthirsty men but will be seen as covered by your right hand so with that in mind father as we prepare to go to the table let us praise you and give you thanks
This time we're going to take 